Well, friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning. We have some pew Bibles in front of you or your mobile device or the Bible you brought. They all will work today. We're going to be in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is the seventh book of the Bible before you get to the end of the New Testament. So if you, if you can't find 1 Peter, just start back at the book of Revelation and work backward seven books and you'll find 1 Peter. 1 Peter is called one of our general or Catholic epistles. Catholic meaning universal epistles in distinction to Paul's 13 letters that were addressed to individual churches or to individuals the general or the Catholic epistles are really addressed to many Christians or many churches at large. So Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude are all called our general epistles or Catholic epistles. Now in 1st Peter we have the writer and many people believe it was the disciple Peter and if it wasn't Peter directly writing it, uh, we know at the very end it indicates that Silvanus or Silas is the one who dictated things. So we think that Peter, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, certainly had a major hand in the writing of this, of this letter. Peter's writing to Christians across the Mediterranean region of the ancient world. He's writing primarily to Gentile Christians, non Jewish Christians. And they're kind of in an interesting situation because they live in the Roman Empire. So they live in a world that needs the love and the forgiveness and the healing of Jesus. But they also understand that they are citizens of the kingdom of God. They're citizens of heaven. So they're living between Easter and the second coming of Christ. And in many ways, not much has changed for you and me, has it? We're still living in that post-Easter world between the Easter event and the second coming of Christ. So in these opening verses, Peter gives us some words that I think help us live between Easter and that second coming. Let's, let's read the text beginning with verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Now, new birth is when you become a Christian, right? He has given us new birth into a living hope. And how does that happen? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in the heavens for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be, to be revealed in the last time. Now that's a reference to the second coming of Christ. So uh, the writer of 1 Peter is saying, hey, we live between the Easter event and the second coming of Christ. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These, meaning these trials, these times of grief, these have come so that your faith 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Again, a reference to his second coming. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, or the salvation of your total self. May God add his blessings to the reading, to the hearing, and to the putting in practice of his holy word. Well, my guess is that most of us in this room have done something in common. Every one of us in this room have envisioned something, we have thought about something, we have designed something, we have been in the process of building something, but the end result has yet to be seen. So, for instance, some of you at some point in your life thought about designing and building a house. But when you started designing and, the build, and building it, you didn't really know what it was going to look like fully until the job was complete. Some of you are teachers. So you've designed, you've built, you've created a course, a syllabus, uh, a curriculum that you're going to teach in that course. But until the end of the semester, you don't really know what the outcome is going to be in terms of the success of teaching that course. Some of you have started a new business. So you had to develop a business plan. But you didn't know when you first envisioned what that business might be, what the outcome was going to be. You, you had to wait over the course of maybe weeks, months, maybe even years to kind of figure out how's it all going to end out. Many of us, either in the past or in the present, have been in the process of building and designing children. We've been raising children. And when you start out, you have a goal, you have an outcome that you have in mind, but you really don't know for weeks and months and more likely years what that product is going to look like, but you envisioned early on what it might be. When we start out designing something, building something, we usually have an outcome, we usually have a goal. And most of us don't, do not start that kind of process without some sense of hopefulness, some sense of confidence that what we think can be the case really can be the case. But when we start, we don't know what the intended destination really is going to be till we get to the end, do we? Well, here in 1 Peter... First Peter is describing a salvation process. It is something that God has built, and it's something that God has designed. But unlike you and me, God develops this plan, and he knows the outcome, he knows the goals, he knows the destination from the get-go. It's a journey that begins with a new birth. That's what First Peter says in verse 3. We have this new birth into a living hope through, Jesus Christ, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It ends there in verse 5. 
the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's going to conclude with the goal of your faith, verse 9, the salvation of your souls, your total self. So 1 Peter is reminding us that we live on the post-Easter side. We're on the post-side of Easter. It's a side that focuses not on what we can see, but on what God sees. It's a side of Easter that celebrates not the fear and the dread, of the women at the empty tomb, it celebrates hope and anticipation of what is yet to come, just like the disciples were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost with hope and anticipation. So we're on that side. It's the side of Easter that's not fixated on the, on the past. It's fixated on the bright future that God has in store for us. And it is the side of Easter that focuses not on human innovation, but on God-breathed creation to meet the challenges that you and I face. So, this is where we are. We are living between the already of Easter and the not yet of the second coming of Christ. And in between this new birth that gets created because of the resurrection of Jesus and the second coming of Christ is a life that has to be lived. And it's a life that's often filled, and you know this as well as I do, it's a life that's filled with pain and grief and sorrow and suffering. The writer of 1 Peter says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. If I ask you this morning to name or to think about someone that you know who is going through a time of grief, pain, suffering, it's a hard time in that person's life. It may be physically, maybe emotionally, mentally, it may be relationally. It might be spiritually. If I ask you to think about someone that you know that's going through a tough time, suffering, pain, grief, my guess is every one of us in this room could fill in the blank with a person's name. In fact, the blank that you might fill in might be with your name. Maybe you're one of those people who you're going through a journey and you have some goal, you have some hopefulness, you have some outcome about the future, but there's some pain and grief that's in your process and you're not quite sure how it's all going to flesh out. Have you ever thought about why is it that God permits suffering and grief and pain? If God is an all-good God, if he's a benevolent God, if God is an all-powerful God, he's an omnipotent God, if God is an all-knowing God, he's an omniscient God, why in the world does God permit the suffering and the pain and the difficulties that we experience in the world? Well, clearly it seems that a great deal of the suffering and the pain 
and the tragedies that we experience in a post-Easter world is a function of the freedom of choice that God gives us in creation. You see, creatures who are given free choices often make decisions that bring pain and suffering and heartache to themselves and other people. The Cleveland, Ohio man who on Easter, last Sunday afternoon, shot and killed an elderly man innocently walking from a family gathering back to his own home. That Cleveland man who shot and killed that elderly man and used his cell phone to take a video of the murder and then posted it on Facebook. And it stayed on Facebook for about two hours before it was removed. And then later in the week was found by law enforcement authorities and there was a chase and when his car was finally pulled over, the man took his own life. That man clearly made some choices. He made some free choices that brought about pain and suffering and grief to himself, to the man that he murdered, and to their, both of their respective families. You know, 1 Peter 1.7 states that these trials that we go through, though not sent by God, are often used by God to refine our faith, to deepen our character, to help us understand that just like gold is purified and refined and tested for its authenticity by fire, so often it's those trials that we go through that bring about suffering and pain and grief that refine our character and test the authenticity, the genuineness of our faith. So you see, unfortunately, and I wish I could tell you this morning that it was different, but unfortunately, it seems that pain and grief and suffering and difficulty often shape and mold our character in the salvation process to become the person that God ultimately intends for us to be. You know, it would really be hard to develop our intellectual and mental capacities if we thought, well, you know, I really would like to avoid the pain of reading and thinking and studying. But you can't develop your intellectual and mental and academic abilities if you don't read and think and study. It would be really difficult to develop a well-toned body by avoiding the pain of exercise. And it would be really difficult I think quite a challenge to earn a living by avoiding the pain of showing up at work on Monday morning and going through the rest of the week. And it's equally true that we can never become the persons that God created us to be. We cannot deepen our trust and our confidence in God and we can't develop that character that begins to make us look like Jesus unless it seems there's some pain and suffering and grief in our life. Now I'll be the first to admit to you and to confess to you this morning that my prayer life deepens. My reading of the Bible increases. 
My faith and my confidence in Jesus flourishes the most when I'm forced to depend on his strength and to depend on his power. As the suffering and the pain and the grief so clearly confirm for me how inadequate my strength and my power is. 1 Peter 1.5 says that we through faith are shielded by God's power. And folks, I got to tell you, when I go through those times of challenge, when I go through those times of pain and suffering and heartache, I need something to shield me because I become so, so clear to me how inadequate my power is. So you see, until the time of Christ's coming, we live in a post-Easter world. And until the time of Christ's second coming, we have to wait, as verse 4 says, for an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. You know, that word inheritance can also mean share. You know, like you own a share of stock. We wait for our shares. We wait for our inheritance that can never spoil or fade or perish. I, I was recently with my brother, and he was reminding me of a story that took place about 30 years ago while he was in graduate school at NC State University. He had a professor in his graduate program who was creating a new technology company there at RTP, at the Research Triangle Park area in the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill area of our state. This professor was, had decided that his company was going to go public, and he was going to begin selling some shares of stock for this new technology company, and he invited my brother to invest some money into it if he wanted to. Now, my brother had worked some in high school. He had worked in college. He had also worked in graduate school, so he had saved some money. And he got to thinking about it, and he said, you know, I think I'm going to take some of my money and invest it in this technology company that my professor is starting up. The professor was selling shares of stock in the technology company for $5 a share. So my brother had saved $5,000. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to buy a thousand shares of stock in this, this new technology company, and I'm going to uh, see what happens. Well, now my father, who was a product of the Great Depression, my father heard about this venture and thought it too risky. And so, as close as a parent can do with a graduate student's son, as close as you can come to forbidding your son from buying the stock, my father gave my brother quite a talk. And he didn't forbid him, but he told him that he thought he was crazy if he invested that $5,000. So my brother, being the obedient son that my father had taught him to be did not invest the $5,000 and buy 1,000 shares of stock in this technology company. 
Fast forward to about a year or so ago, and my brother was meeting with his financial advisor, and he told him this story about this company. And the financial advisor says, well, what's the name of the company? And my brother told him the name. He said, um, by the way, that company has been very successful. And my brother was telling him the story, and he said, well, um, how many shares did you say you were planning to buy? He said, I was going to buy 1,000 shares, invest $5,000. The financial advisor said, would you be interested to know how much that would be worth today? And my brother said, I don't know. Would I? He said, well, let me just check for a moment. So he, he kind of turned around, had the computer on, you know, behind, on another desk behind the main desk. He turned around. He looked up what the sheriff's share of uh, stock would be, how much it would be worth today. And he, you know, he kind of figured in reinvesting some dividends and that sort of thing. He turned back around to my brother. He said, I'm glad you're sitting down. He said, if you had bought 1,000 shares of stock 30 years ago in this company, it would be worth $18 million today. Now, at that point, my brother and I are sitting there looking at each other. And, you know, my dad died about seven and a half years ago. We love our dad a great deal. But for a brief moment, we were not thinking too well of him. <laughs> and he was a product of the Depression, and he understood what could happen in the stock market. And I'm sitting there even thinking, you know, my brother's a pretty benevolent guy. He might have even tipped me a couple hundred thousand dollars through the years out of that 18 million. You know, the risen Jesus' salvation is a guaranteed investment. It's a guaranteed inheritance. It has guaranteed value in its stock, in its shares. It's a guaranteed investment in your future. And you shouldn't pass on it. Because as the writer of 1 Peter says, it will not spoil, it will not fade, it will not perish. So you need to buy it now. And you need to claim it as your own. Now, because we live in a post-Easter world, between Easter and the second coming of Christ, it may take it a while for it to fully materialize. It may take it a while for it to be seen in its fullness. But amidst all of the grief and all of the pain and all of the suffering that we have to endure in this world, God uses all of that to bring about his good purposes. And we need to understand that the fullness of his salvation is coming. So it's worth your investing in it right now, not just for the future, but it's a worthy investment for the present. Let's pray together.
God, as a loving parent, cares so compassionately for his or her child or children, so this morning we affirm you as our loving Father. You are the loving parent, and you want the best for us. And in the living of our lives right now, God, you know the pain and the suffering and the grief and the heartache that we often endure. Lord, we believe that through faith that you guard us and that you protect us and that you see us through these trials and just like gold and fire, you're using it to refine us. You're using it to build our character so that more and more we resemble the family and the one whom we worship in the family, your son, Jesus our Lord. So, Father, continue to walk on with us on this journey of faith in this post-Easter world and guard and keep us until the revealing of your Son in those end times, whenever they may come, as we ask our prayer in his holy name. Amen. Well, friends, we're going to sing a hymn of response this morning. The words will be on the screen because the hymn is not in your hymnal. It's resurrection power. The words are to a familiar tune that you will know well. And as we sing the hymn together this morning, maybe there's someone here who has never made that first-time decision to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. You may have been through our Oakmont 101 membership class, and now you're ready to become a part of the Oakmont Church family. I'll, I'll wait for you here at the front and would welcome receiving any decision that God lays on your heart. Maybe you want to go back to the prayer stations to pray with one of our ministers to leave a prayer request. And I want you to know that, that your ministers, we really do take seriously praying for you and the needs that you share with us on Monday morning when we gather at 930. And many of the times, the things that you share with us are those times in your life when you are going through those, those seasons of grief or those seasons of pain and suffering. And they may be physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, relational, but they're all real for you, and we know that, and we do lift you up in prayer. So in whatever way that would be meaningful to you, I hope that you'll respond this morning. So let's stand, and let's sing our hymn together.
sisters and brothers in Christ, the peace of Christ be with you. I want you to take just a moment and reach out to those who are around you and offer words of greeting and peace this morning, if you would. Hey, hey, now, now the service is not over with yet. You, you, you can't keep talking and um, carrying on, but I, I did kind of wanted to whet your appetite to uh, speak to those who are around you today. Welcome to all who are here and sharing in worship at Oakmont today. We always appreciate those who are uh, a part of our television service through cable channel 7. Some are live streaming one or both of our services. I hear a lot of people who uh, listen online to uh, the audio portion. So we have a lot of different ways that, that people can connect if they're here or not in town on a Sunday. And we're grateful that you are here in the flesh, in person, for us to share in this time of worship. I do hope you'll take the Burgundy Fellowship pads in just a moment and sign in. And again, if you have lots of folks on your pew that you don't know, it'll maybe help you to match some names and faces together. You know, one of the things that we do every week when we worship is to practice generosity. That is a spiritual habit and practice that is a part of our worship to God. And not only is it a spiritual practice, but practically, let's just be honest, I've really appreciated, you know, having a building with electricity and water and paper towels and literature and all sorts of things that we have and that we'll enjoy this morning that make our worship and our study together possible. And the things we do in our community and in our world to touch people for Jesus. So our money fuels our ministry. So I want to ask our ushers to come now, and as they do, I invite you to be radical in your generosity as you return to God his tithes and our offerings. <laughs> 